there was this little voice in me that was like, but don't think you're meant for this. Mm. I think you're meant for something different. And I was like, shh, we're trying to get promoted. Let's just <laughs> deal with that, you know, later. Um, and, and I'll come back to you, you know, and it took me probably 10 years to come back to that voice. What is up, BA family? Happy Wednesday. And thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. We are all about driving massive action backed by an incredible mindset that'll push you to the heights that you have the potential to get to. Our guest today was already having incredible success. She spent 20 years as an executive in corporate America, counseling Fortune 500 companies on growth strategy and digital transformation, but ended up realizing that it wasn't her calling. It wasn't something that she really wanted to go after and continue to do. And she was stuck in the hustle culture, the loop of continuing to constantly chase the next thing over and over and over, got stuck in that hustle culture, in that grind mindset, and realized that she wanted out, that she thought there was more. Jenny decided to leave the career that she had built up for the last 20 years, the extremely successful career, and become the author of Corporate Rehab, Ditch the Hustle Culture, Thrive Again, where Jenny shares the stories of more than 300 women who finally decided to leave behind the hustle culture for a thriving, balanced life. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, Mason, I'm a guy. Is this for me? And it 100% is. I took away so much from this conversation because... While Jenny's work is very focused on women, it is something that men can gain insight on. It is something that men can utilize in their work. And it is something that is not gender-based on if you have this thought in your head, this idea, this thing that you want to execute on and you know you should be doing it, but you might be hesitant to, right? It's that voice in your head. And Jenny speaks to it very well in a place where she had to leave a seriously successful spot in corporate America and just knew that it was what was right for her. Jenny is also the CEO and founder of Corporate Rehab, where she takes her path, her journey, the things that she learned along her way of exiting corporate America and helps executive women do the same. There's an extremely valuable lesson in there as well with what Jenny has done in taking her experience and her path and then being able to turn around and say, this is how I did it. This was my roadmap and this is how I can help others do it. If you enjoyed today's episode and you want to go hear more from Jenny, you can go buy her book, Corporate Rehab, Ditch the Hustle Culture and Thrive Again on Amazon and wherever else you get books or you can find her on corporate-rehab.com. And as always, if you haven't checked us out, you can find us at Breathing Air Podcast, at Breathing Air Podcast on Instagram. Go follow us for the latest and greatest. Message me, let me know what you thought of the show. I always want to be able to interact with you and the BA family. It is so important to me, and it's what drives us to continue to get better every single day. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. And without further ado... It's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you, Jenny Blumenthal. Thanks for having me, Mason. This will be fun. So you just recently dropped a book called Corporate Rehab, Ditch the Hustle Culture, Thrive Again. 
What is this book all about? Tell me how this came to be. Yeah, so it's a it's a story really of my own experience. So I was an executive in corporate America for about twenty years, um, leading a three hundred million dollar business unit and two hundred fifty people, and liked a lot of the work that I did, but also found myself really struggling to keep up with all of the demands. As um, I grew in my practice, I thought. If I just get to the next rung in the up of the corporate ladder, then I'll have enough control around my schedule and not have to be traveling so much or, you know, constantly hustling. And uh, and that was not the case. <laughs> in fact, it was <laughs> the more I climbed, the more the uh, the stakes grew. I have at uh, the time uh, I left the corporate America world. I had two kids who were in elementary school. My husband with his own career, and so we kind of were constantly hustling in the work week, on the soccer sidelines and thinking at some point we'll get to stop and enjoy our lives. And uh, right. and that moment came for me in early 2020 where I just said, that's it. I can't, I can't do this anymore. And, um, and pivoted out. And when people asked me what I was doing, I was joking that I was putting myself through my own corporate rehab because I was really burned out at that point. Um, and, uh, and I started documenting the steps I had taken and, sharing it with other people. And I had so many people said, oh, you need to talk to my wife or my you know, co- colleague. And so I started gathering these stories. And that's really what became the book is my story of burnout and uh, getting trapped in the hustle culture, story of 300 executive women I wound up interviewing and the process that I took to, to rehab my life. It's amazing. There's a, there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to kind of start even further back. So September 2011, we obviously know the you know tragedy that happened, but you were also starting a new role around that time as the director of sales, strategy, and technology innovation, if I'm not mistaken. So what was really your mindset at this point in time? We've kind of went forward in time a little bit, but as you're starting this new job, what was you know your mindset going into that? So sorry, which year in 2011? Yeah, when you first started um, that role. Yeah. So, um, at that point, my, um, my kids were little, so it was about survival. <laughs> it was about trying to keep all the trains running and, uh, and figure out really, you know, what was, um, what my career was going to be shaped like. And I think at that point in time, I was very ambitious, very driven. Um, also had a lot of confidence that I would be able to figure this out. Um, and really was trying to figure out, what the future would hold in terms of the type of projects that I was meant to be working on. And when that, you know, that app or that team member or that project was going to slide into place that was going to let me discover the 25th hour of the day. And it would all come <laughs> together. So I think that's probably what my mindset was back then, that if I just keep my head down and hustle harder um, and apply a little more grit, this is all going to get figured out. Yeah, I think a lot of us take that mindset, especially someone that's ambitious and really has a vision for what they want. It's yeah. easy to get trapped in that. But what was your biggest struggle, you know, climbing that corporate ladder and and how did you kind of overcome that for someone that's maybe in a similar position as you? Yeah, so I think there's probably a couple of different struggles. There was definitely the external struggle of how do I find my voice and use my voice and, you know, figure out how much to 
uh, put my head down and just run as hard as I can and how much to step back and create kind of space for thinking and strategy Mm -hmm. and collaborating with others. So that was what was definitely going on outside. Um, And I was in a structure where you just, you know, if you can start to actually manage the relationships and close the deals, then everything kind of flows from there. And so once I hit that stride of, you know, trusting that the the personality I brought to the table in terms of managing relationships, understanding what people's true needs were, um, and connecting that to the sales cycle was really like the big aha moment for me that instead of pushing so hard, you just understand what what people need in their career and help them get there. Um, And that really started working on the outside. Um, I think there was another internal struggle where there was this little voice in me that was like, I don't think you're meant for this. I think you're meant for something different. And I was like, shh, we're trying to get promoted. Let's just deal with that, you know, later. Um, and, and I'll come back to you. You know, and it took me probably 10 years to come back to that voice. Um, but as we all know, who've been through something where, you know, either your outsides don't match your insides or there's something in your life that you can't quite explain or put your finger on that voice has a way of speaking louder. Um, and so I think that was really the two main struggles for me until I finally said, okay, you know, unfortunately the voice didn't have a huge billboard blinking and pointing me, this is the way to go, but it just said, this is no longer it. And this is, this is killing you and you've got to stop. Mm. Yeah. How, how important when you're on this journey, cause you talked a little bit about that flow that you got into in the process and those skills that you developed obviously throughout a long career, how important was that skill development for you then to now and your business that you're now running where you're following that passion, that voice? Yeah, I think skills are really important. Um, I think the um, the sales piece is huge in terms of connecting people's you know needs to where you can either fulfill that need or find someone in your network who can fulfill that need mm-hmm. is huge. I think the leadership skill of being able to understand what your team needs and what the situation calls for and vary your leadership. Sometimes it really is a command and control. We've got to take that hill. Like when I was leading my team through um, the pandemic, I was actually leading the travel industry, if you can believe it at the time. So talk about a dumpster fire at that moment in time. Um, But it also gave me a lot of purpose, right? That we were up there reinventing the industry from the ground up and trying to help people. Um, And so that really took a lot of, you know, having a set vision, being clear and having those leadership skills, but then varying it to be really empathetic to people that had just lost their career and had to reinvent themselves. And so trying to balance a little bit of that, you know, masculine leadership style with a feminine leadership style of the drive and ambition with the collaboration and empathy, mm. um, I think is a skill set and one that we'd all do well to to hone, you know, really for the rest of our lives, whether you're leading as an entrepreneur or in a boardroom or wherever you're leading from. Um, I think the other piece that's interesting about skills, though, is it's so easy to get caught up in the, the fixed mindset of if I'm not good at the thing, then I'll never be good at it, as mm-hmm. opposed to this growth mindset that just says, I haven't learned that skill yet. I haven't learned how to close that deal or negotiate that contract. Um, so I think it's it's important to have those, but then be open to the things that you might not yet know. Um, and I use both of those skills every day in what I'm doing now in leading my company, in coaching executive women in giving leadership trainings to companies all over the world. Um, both of those are important. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I love hearing that because 
you have such a strong message, but I think it's important for people to understand too, that those skills that you created in that time where maybe you knew that you weren't doing exactly what you wanted to do. I feel like a lot of people can relate to that. Those skills you still use today and they help you, you know, combine with your passion to have even more power and more reach and, you know, more influence in the space that you're in now. So for anyone that's in that little middle ground, kind of like you said, Hey, I want to keep getting better. I have this ambition to continue to grow and climb, but I have this voice in my head where hmm, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't what I ultimately want to do. What is one of the things or some of the things that they can do to be able to take that leap of faith into following that passion? Yeah, I think one of the things, um, and, and you hit on this, but I'll just pull it a little deeper is really disconnecting that skill or that value from the job and the role itself. Because too often we think, well, if I just take this next level, I'll learn these five things or get exposure to that business unit or industry or what have you. And if you think about it instead as just a collection of experiences that you're trying to go after, um, then it can keep you a little bit open to how those experiences might apply to something else down the the, the line. And I think that's where... It's key because it's very easy to over-identify with a company or a role or, you know, a title or something that, you know, makes you feel comfortable in the world, gives you esteem. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Those are those are good things. Um, but it's when we give so much weight to that that we fail to see the path that's opened in front of us and we stay really focused on the path that um, that we're in, maybe out of loyalty, maybe out of comfort. Um, so I think for people trying to navigate that, you know, really think about how you want others to see you or how you'd want others to describe you if you weren't in the room. And what are those, you know, strengths that you bring to the table? What are those skill sets that you can do better than anyone else? And then think about like, what is it that actually lights you up and figure out if you can apply those same skill sets to the things that really get you excited. Um, And it's not always your job. That's the other thing to just kind of give anyone listening a little bit of a free pass it's wonderful when those things completely align, but note that you are also a growing human who reserves the right to grow and change. And maybe your passion for this phase in your life will evolve into something else. And that's why I think it's just helpful to be thinking about what is the thing that you uniquely do or can bring to the table and then what lights you up and know that that whatever wrapper you put around that, whatever company, whatever role can change um, as long as you're staying true to the answers to those questions. Yeah. You kind of, excuse me, you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, the status piece and our identity in that. I think a lot of people can relate to that, right? There's a book that I just read by Alex Hermosi where he talks about status and how it is one of the biggest drivers, if not the biggest driver for so much that we do. You know, why do we work out so we look good, so that we attract the opposite sex more? Why do we take that job and get lost in this hustle culture? And it's funny, he tells a story of, you know, a very wealthy family. The mom, obviously, she's very wealthy as well. And and she's kind of asking like, Hey, you know, I, I don't agree with that. You know, I don't think status is my biggest driver. Like I don't care about the cars. I don't care about these things. She's like, I drive my minivan and that's, that's fine. And, and the, the guy's like, well, why do you, why do you drive your minivan? She's like, you know, cause I don't want the other moms to think I'm a bad mom by going around and driving a Lambo. And he's like, point proven, you know, you want status within your group of people that you care about. So for you, 
when you were making that change of, you know, you had created such success and in this executive role, and then you change from having that status to now being out on your own and creating something from, from brand new, was there a paradigm shift for you there? And what was that like? Because geez, even at that role, there's gotta be some type of identity that you have to start wrestling with. Yeah, definitely. And actually I, I coach on this a lot now for people that are either leaving the workforce and doing their own thing or are rebranding themselves, but, you know, completely changing jobs or industries or a lot of people who are retiring, which is actually the other end of the spectrum where you're going a hundred miles an hour and then you have your retirement party and you're like, wait, what now? And you know, what about the rest of my life? So I think it requires a big mindset shift. And again, I think that part for me really comes back to value. Like, what do you value um, in your life right now? Um, and, and we all say, we, we might all, you know, say, oh, family and faith and the things that, you know, might be written on big block letters in your mom's kitchen, right? <laughs> but when you think about like how you actually live your life and what you do day to day is what you're doing with your time, enabling you to do those things. And I think as long as you're keeping those aligned, that is a good anchor because as you, you know, jump into this next phase, whether you're resetting for a little bit or recovering from burnout or launching a company or taking on a bigger role, if you're thinking about the value that you bring and what you value, it can help kind of ground you in that you don't lose too much of that identity in in what it is that you do for a living or what you do from nine to five or what have you. Um, for me, it was definitely identity shift. Um, and it was also a little bit hard to shift out of just the the mindsets and the behaviors that I was so used to for so long. Um, I actually tell the story in my book because I found it kind of funny. But um, when I when I left the Monday after I had just turned over a huge client to a guy I helped make partner a couple years before, and I got they didn't turn off my email right away. So I was I woke up Monday morning. I thought, oh, good. I feel so free. And I go and look on my phone and there's an email from someone who didn't know I had left saying, hey, can you go approve this document? And my mindset was, oh, this other guy's busy. I'll just go in and approve it. And I was thinking, God, I don't even work here anymore. Like, what am I doing? There's just these patterns that we get into, right? That, oh, he's too busy. I have more time. I'll just do it, you know. And um, I just thought that was kind of a funny example of how easy it is to just get caught in this hamster wheel of productivity and some of the shift of, from a mindset perspective is, you know, pausing a little bit and actually thinking about how you use your time intentionally, especially when it's your own agenda um, uh, or your team's agenda that you're trying to drive. Um, that part's hard, especially when you're, you've been very successful making a lot of other people successful <laughs> and sometimes, you know, trying to recenter that around what you think is the right thing to do um, can sometimes be the hardest shift. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in your thought on is hustle culture and this idea of burnout is burnout associated with doing something that you don't actually like doing, or is it associated with, you know, quote unquote balance that we find in our lives? Because I feel like for some people they're doing something they don't like, they're burnt out. They decide to take this leap and get into something that they really love. And then they spend even more time in that piece, right? And for you too, carrying over these traits and these subconscious patterns, yeah. it's like, how do we break that? Especially now that this is something that we love and are passionate about. Is there a correlation there? 
Yeah. So that's, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a big topic. I mean, for me, the connection is the hustle culture really makes us disconnect from who we are, what we value, what we're on this earth to do in the name of productivity, right? Everything has to be busy and all the time. So we're putting aside other parts of ourselves in order to get ahead, right? And that can mean very different things to different people. I'll work all night. I'll, you know, make sure that I, um, you know, so that could be a time piece of it. I'll work on a project I hate, but it'll get me the next promotion. And what we're really doing there is actually um, pushing against our own boundaries. And the boundaries could be time, they could be energy, but we're sacrificing those in the name of productivity. And so burnout can come from a time boundary that you've, you know, let lapse, or that you could be in a culture that rewards that time boundary being pushed on. And you're burned out because you're burning the candle at both ends. Um, if you're a caregiver, whether that's of kids or adults or, you know, elderly, um, that increases the level of burnout even more because now you're burning out in a job and you're burning out outside of outside of work. Um, you could also be burned out just from boredom because that energy piece that mm. either you're not protecting your own energy or the thing that you're being asked to do doesn't light you up, you know, on some level. And that's not to say that we only should work jobs where we feel 100% passionate about all the time. But if you do have a sense that something doesn't feel right or that it's not actually connecting, you can't find meaning in the thing that you're doing. That's a red flag for, you know, for approaching burnout. So that's the thing I think that's the first piece because that's how they're, they're both connected and burnout can really be that boredom. It can be, you know, the time and energy piece, which is really hard. Um, and then the other piece to note is that, you know, this is a growing thing that the World Health Organization actually redefined burnout in 2019, even before the pandemic, to include workplace stress that's chronic and unmanaged. And so when we think about that, some of it is these things we hold inside us that we have to keep working to show value, or we got to get to that next level to provide for our families. Or a lot of times it's in the air we breathe and the cultures that we work in and the family we were raised in, in, you know, the, the performance measures that we're being gold against. And so I think that's what becomes so hard is that the hustle culture and burnout are directly related, but it's sometimes hard to, de- to determine how much is you and how much is the environment around you or mm-hmm. both. Mm-hmm. That's, that's important. That's definitely makes a lot of sense. I think, it's really interesting to point out to this idea of quiet quitting that we're seeing now. And specifically for women, there's a statistic with 50% of working women reporting to feel more stressed than the year prior. And, you know, specifically with burnout and like you mentioned, being a caregiver, what are some of the biggest things that you have seen in your clients specific to women that, you know, men need to be aware of that other women listening need to be aware of, um, in this, in this hustle culture. Yeah. So I think the first piece on the quiet quitting specifically is there's a couple of different groups of people that are quiet quitting or a couple of different reasons, which was, I think what makes it a little bit harder. Um, the, the women that I see that are quiet quitting have been giving 150% and are being rewarded for a hundred percent, maybe paid like 90%. Um, and they're like, that's it. You know, either they're doing invisible office work or they're putting in extra time and not getting directly rewarded or they're, you know, as we said, they're already burned out by a situation outside of work. And so they're like, look, I can't give as much as I used to. Um, And even when we think about the invisible work, it's easy to say, 
yes, we ask women to plan the birthday parties. But what usually happens is it's on top of that. It's you should, you know what you'd be great at? You should lead the women's network. Oh, you'd be the, the perfect spokesperson for it. It's not that much time. And it turns into, you know, another hundred hours in the year that you're doing to basically take care of the culture mm. and make it a great place to work. But that's not reflected. That, that, that gets rewarded with a pat on the head. And, you know, and instead you better meet your numbers and that's kind of a nice to have, right? So right. I think that's the big disconnect that really disproportionately impacts women, also import, impacts people of color because a lot of times now the DEI work is expected of people of color and then, you know, women of color are getting kind of a double penalty. So I think that's the first thing is just be aware if you're being asked to do a lot of those roles or if you're asking someone on your team, um, it, it's not always coming from a... a a mean Machiavellian place. I think someone would think when they're in a, in a leadership role, oh, it makes sense for this person to lead it, but they're not aware of what else that person's already doing or what else they have on their plate. Um, the second thing I see a ton within the the women that I coach is there's a lot of people that are really focused on um, a, a limiting belief that they have um, of not being enough. Mm. And so they turn into people pleasers or conflict avoiders. Um, there's lots of reasons in my private coaching and workshops, we go into this a ton. Um, but if, you know, you were in a situation where you're rewarded for your performance, you're rewarded for the report card and making the soccer team, but you're not necessarily rewarded for some of the internal things that you bring to the table, like your compassion and your empathy. And if you're in an environment where it's all productivity all the time, and you're only as good as your last deal, you're going to run really, really hard to make sure you get that pat on the head because deep down you might feel like I'm not really enough. And so once I have that adult version of the report card, the promotion, then I'll finally feel like I'm enough. So I think that's the second thing to, to look out for is to just, you know, um, if you find yourself, you know, hearing yourself talk to yourself after you've made a mistake, if it's things like I should have known my boss was going to ask for that you know, piece of the report. Next time I'll study extra hard or spend even more time putting the slides together. Um, really what's running on, underneath that is I'm not enough. You know, I didn't mm. do it enough and I'm not enough. And so catching yourself in that mindset, I think is a, is a really important part. And then the third piece I'd say is um, if you're a manager of people and you've got a ton of people quiet quitting, um, don't rush to judgment it's an invitation to actually go beneath that and understand why that's happening, right? As opposed to branding them, they're just lazy millennials or they're just, you know, <laughs> which I hear all the time. I'm like, I, I think you would have known that before this moment in time. Like this person was working so hard for you yesterday, but suddenly they're lazy. No, they're, they're telling you that, you know, there's something off if there's a number of people um, that are now feeling burned out. Mm. I love that. That's that's a huge thing that I use today in, in the sales world. I think everyone can use whenever you have a deal that doesn't close or something where you're like, oh man, like why did that not happen? Instead of looking at yourself saying, I'm a failure in this situation, using it as an opportunity to go even deeper with that customer, or deeper with that person and say, hey, I know this isn't happening, but why? What could I have done better? How could I have shown up better for you here? And I think for anyone listening, I mean, especially in the sales space, but really anywhere in life, that is such an opportunity to gain trust and respect yes. more than anything else. And it shows that, hey, I'm not the slap of sales, sales sticker on my head. I'm a person and I really want what's best for you. And, and so using those opportunities is, is definitely important. 
Yeah, there's actually a, a great technique for that. Um, and it's a little bit more connected to your internal thoughts, but it kind of works in a sales cycle too. So it's Tara Brock's reign of self-compassion, where hmm. she teaches you every time you catch a limiting belief of any kind, um, gosh, I should have made that deal. Why didn't I make that deal? Recognize it is the R. So uh, first of all, just know that you're having it. A is allow it. Stop judging yourself for having it instead of hmm. immediately saying, oh my gosh, I always do this. You know, just just a second, pause and allow it. The third one is I, it's investigate and really dig beneath it, as you said, to say, why am I saying that? Why do I think I need to beat myself up right now? And then N stands for nurture, where you're just like, actually, I just didn't get this deal done. Um, and it's okay, I'll get the next one. And I think if we apply that even in a sales situation, if you find that you're losing deals for the same reason, or you're running up against saying the same negative things in your head, like you might be caught in a pattern that's worth looking into shifting um, and figuring out what's going on for you, where you could be knocking on the same doors with the same, you know, problems again and again, without you know, understanding there might be something else you can shift in that and, and open up new opportunities. Mm, I love that. I love that. In our culture today, I feel like you are starting to see some more voices come out along the empathy line, away from the go, go, go productivity hustle culture line. Uh, you know, you, you hear Gary Vee talking about empathy and, and running a company. You hear a lot of, you know, important people that are starting to come out, yourself included. And so you had mentioned this scenario where, you know, you may feel like the KPIs or something that you're personally getting judged on, um, you know, is going unseen. And you want to be able to either say, hey, this I don't have the bandwidth for this, guys or girls, whoever you're reporting to. And you want to be able to approach that situation in a way where it's respectful and that you're not feeling like, hey, I'm losing an opportunity here to really show out because I am burnt out from this. I'm taking too much workload on. I think a lot of people get put in that position and they are burnt out, but they don't know how to approach someone above them to tell them, Hey, you got to back off here. So how can someone in that situation be able to approach uh, someone higher up in the company or in their workforce to be able to kind of mitigate yeah. that? I think the first thing is trying to figure out why you're burned out because that helps you be in control or in empowered to make the changes that are going to help. Like if you realize you're, approaching burnout and it's because a time boundary um, has been, you know, run through. People are sending you emails at 10 and asking you to do things over the weekend. And that that's an easier one to kind of, you know, spot and then figure out what to do with next. If it's an energy thing or a lack of purpose, that's where it becomes a little bit, you know, personal in terms of that you're not finding meaning in the thing, right? right. And with that information in mind, I think you can then approach the person with a little bit more information. Instead of I'm just hitting burnout, you're going to them and saying, hey, this, you know, in the time situation, I'm finding that this is happening every weekend. I really care about this project and this, but how can we get ahead of this to make sure that I'm giving it my best? Because those last two all-nighters, that that slide deck I put together was yeah. crap. Let, let's not get in that position again. Um, and I think it's just calling that to attention. If it's an energy thing, then you've got to think about, you know, okay, is it that I don't find the work meaningful? Is it that I'm working with a really tough boss that actually is pretty draining on me or, mm. or an abusive client? I've heard that a ton. Um, and either of those situations, I think then you can kind of figure out, 
Is it something where you're going to have relief and there's something that you can deal with for a certain time? Obviously, if there's abuse, you need to you know report that right away. But a lot of times it's what's toxic for every person can be a little different, right? And so understanding what's within your control versus what's part of the environment is a big piece of that. Um, you could say something to the effect of like, being on this project has really made me realize that doing projects where I'm focused on revenue or where I'm focused on, you know, uh, process improvement or whatever really lights me up. And the next one, I'd really love to make sure we can get staffed on that type of thing. Um, Anything where you can give them something a little bit more specific, I think would be great. If you're noticing that you're one of, um, every team member around you that's feeling the same, that's when you know it's a little bit more systemic. Um, And I think that's the time when it's actually really helpful to rely on stats that, you know, 78% of all workers are feeling burned out. You know, that's a big deal. You're you're not alone if you're in that stat, right? 70% of the C-suite right now has reported that they would actually be willing to switch companies if it gave them a better work-life balance or wellness. So we're not alone in some of these, you know, these feelings. It's just a matter of really isolating what it is for you so you know what problem that you're solving and then asking for help, raising your hand and and um, and asking for some support from your leadership there. And if nothing else, you can pass them an article or two um, <laughs> or my book. Right, and, say, yeah, it's not just, um, and that uh, I think all three of those things help. All the teams, all the team managers listening, we have to go buy Jenny's book and get it there out to the go. teams. Amazing. We love this. You talk about the idea of surviving versus thriving, and it's kind of been central to this message that we've been talking about today, but how do you ride the line of just being uncomfortable to be able to get to where you want to go and burn out? Because obviously there is a line there, and we want to be able to teeter that line as best possible. How do we create that balance in our life? Yeah, I think for me, this is, and this is why I coach a lot on, it's about making the subconscious conscious, right? So mm-hmm. it's taking those things, those scripts that are running in the back of our, of our minds, of our bodies, and bringing that forward into your thinking mind so that you're actually making some decisions about it. So for example, um, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, but as my coaching too, if you think about, you know, that word survival, it sounds a little bit ridiculous when you think about us living in first world America to say we're trapped in survival, right? But if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that bottom line is, you know, taking care of food, shelter, water. Once you're freed up, then you can move on to purpose and esteem and up the ladder. Um, But the challenge is when we're either in environments, like you might be actually in a, you have to pull the all-nighters or you're working 100-hour weeks, um, or we were raised in environments where there was a lot of stress, our bodies are trapping that within us. And it really is like ski, this is where I can geek out on the neuroscience. <laughs> it's like ski tracks, right? In your brain that, you know, when something happens, your brain's triggered to go right back to what it knows. Oh, crap, I'm in survival mode. I will shut down all thinking and I will execute tasks, right? It comes in really handy for surviving wars, for raising toddlers, <laughs> but it does not come in handy um, when you're trying to live a full life. And I think that's really what it comes down to is just trying to shift back into thriving. It's it's really being honest with yourself about those patterns and whether they're still serving you and making some conscious decisions to say, yeah, I'm going up for this next level and I'm willing to put this time in you know, for six months, or I'm willing to relax this boundary 
and I'll talk with the, you know, the people I live with and family and make sure everybody's on that same page, but I'm willing to make that trade-off. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's what's important to you and you're making that decision, that's great. I think what happens though is often we're running on those scripts and we get to a point and we think, well, I just have to stay for the next thing, or I just have to make sure I can feed my family. And we're, we're talking about people that can provide for their family just fine. It's just that now they're stuck in this and there's no way to get out of it unless you're saying, is it, am I really doing what I want to here? Or am I stuck in this old story that I have to produce in order to feel like I'm enough or to feel like I'm, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I am enough really more than anything else. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that we get stuck on these old patterns and, um, actually interviewing a couple of people for the book. There was one man I spoke with who, and I spoke with mostly women, but a handful of men, um, who's huge CEO and said, yeah, you know, I am so proud of everything I've done, but my dad doesn't still doesn't understand my job. And maybe one day, you know, he'll understand what, what I do and that would be great. And I'm thinking, God, this guy's <laughs> worth a fortune, you know, yeah. managing 30,000 people. And he's still stuck on this, you know, this relationship with his dad who doesn't really understand what he does. And that's the thing that, you know, when you think about it, when you're making these decisions between profit and purpose and people like there's, it's going to be hard for that guy to say, no, I'll relax a little bit and not, you know, not move up the ladder or not do this next big power move and instead take care of other people. He's probably running on an old script that says I'm still not enough. I got to do even more. So I think that's part of it. Um, and just being understanding of yourself as to what those motivations are and making sure they're conscious. Mm. So much truth in there. And anyone that's listened to the show a lot knows that I harp on awareness so much, but Speaking of neuroscience, I definitely geek out on that as well. 90 to 95% of the actions and the habits that we have are already subconscious. And so for us to be able to pull ourselves away from that is weird because once again, we're going into an uncomfortable place. I think what you said there in terms of how far back those subconscious patterns can actually go is crazy to think about, right? And, and to be able yeah. to unhinge some of that damage or trauma or those things that we just learned. And, and before we even realize it, you know, we're 20, 30 years down the road and we're still stuck in those patterns. You, uh, you'd mentioned that, you know, staying in jobs we hate may have a similar psychological correlation to toxic relationships as well. What, what goes along with that? How does, how do those marry together? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote a, a post that was probably one of my more popular ones that said your, your job's your to a toxic boyfriend. It could be a girlfriend too. Um, but I think um, <laughs> the way that those two things connect is we go back to what's familiar, right? Mm. And that doesn't mean that it's good for you. It's just familiar. And so to your point, these things that we've picked up across our lives, you know, one of the things that about the mindset since we're going there is, you know, it's really set by age seven. So by first grade, wow. You've already learned who around you is a safe person, who's not safe. What are the things that get me rewarded and get me that, you know, like an A on the report card? What are the parts of me that are better not to show? Like when I cry and I'm told to toughen up and maybe I'll mm -hmm. just tuck that away and not show that part of me because it doesn't get rewarded. Um, and all of that, if you think about by the time you're in first grade, you've kind of developed that worldview. Now that changes over time. But your brain is going through such intense development then that those grooves are really deep and it's going to take other experiences to add to those to really change 
what those worldviews are. And to your point, mentioning trauma, if you have had, you know, any type of trauma, it could be, you know, the one-time trauma, like the car accident, it could be living with someone who's an unreliable caregiver. You learn that that's, you know, you can't always trust other people. So I better make sure I get this, this need met on my own, those types of things. And that's a really hard pattern to unlearn. Um, so I saw um, woman after woman, I was coaching. And as I started to interview, I wound up interviewing these 300 women for the book. I kept seeing this pattern pop up as I would ask them more about their stories. And it was like, you know, I know this sounds crazy to say, but it's almost like that jerk you dated in college that, you know, you knew he wasn't good for you, but he all, every once in a while he came back and told you you're really pretty, but then he would like, you know, ghost you again and make you really work for his attention. It's my job kind of feels like that. And after like the 10th woman said that, I was like, geez, there's something here. But I think there's a lot of that, that like, if you're used to this, you know, love bombing or someone being hot and cold, it's familiar. You know how to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. I worked with a lot of narcissists and I was joking that I became the narcissist whisperer because I understood (laughs) how to deal with them. You know, they were jerks, a lot of them, but I knew what to do. And so I think, you know, unfortunately in that situation, I was still working with those with, with a bunch of narcissists or jerks and that sucks. Not all of them were obviously, but, um, but the point is, you know, do we really, if we want to go back to something familiar, yes, we feel confident because we know how to handle it, but it doesn't mean it's good for you. You know, you're still surrounded by a group of people that might not actually be contributing a whole lot to your, your mental wellness. So that's really the connection between those two. Yeah. You've, you've said a lot of things around peace and pausing and being able to step away and there, it really resonates with me. There's a saying I love that peace begins with pause. And I always remind myself that because I definitely get stuck in the hamster wheel of go, go, go productivity. If I'm not producing, then I start feeling bad when I produce. I'm like, let's go. I'm the best, right? Like, And so being able to pause and separate from that productivity and just be present is mm-hmm. something that's hard. It's something you have to practice, but it's been the biggest game changer in my life in so many areas. And so kind of what you were mentioning around our subconscious patterns and them being formed at an early age, how, is, how important is it for us and how can we begin to peel back the layers and actually create our story instead of living from, you know, that, that phase of reacting? Yeah. So um, I'll mention a little bit about the book here, because this is where the process that I went through, I found so helpful. And as I started to share it with other people, it's why I decided to write a book about it. Um, So I, when I was trying to figure out, like, why did I stay in a situation that wasn't always that great for me? What part of it was me? What part of it was the situation I was in? Um, what did I pick up early in life and how can I reprogram some of that stuff? I basically started sharing it with others, but it was really overwhelming to be like, read these 50 books and watch (laughs) these 10 podcasts. Um, so I broke it down into, into a framework that I used, which really spelled out the letters rehab. So the first, um, R stands for recognizing your life story. So just the context for your values, the impact of any trauma, all the things that you've gone through. E is evaluate. So you look at your relationships and your patterns, your energy, your time. H is heal across mind, body, and spirit. A is arise and grow into these new skills. And then B is to build new dimensions of your life and your career so that you can actually shift 
some of those things. So I like to think of it holistically like that because I think there's pauses woven throughout that, but it's really thinking about creating the space for you to get quiet and still Mm. and actually listen to some of these answers that you probably already have within you. It's just that we all get caught on the hamster wheel, as you (laughs) mentioned, and we're hustling for our worth outside of ourselves when actually so many of the answers that we're looking for, you know, we have available to us. So I think Mm. that process is what I used and what I coach on um, because I think it, it took the world getting still through the pandemic for me to recognize that something was really off um, and that I needed some change, but I don't know that I would have if I had been hopping on the next plane and getting to the next meeting. So that uh, the hustle culture struggle is real for for so many of us. Yeah, absolutely. Your your story is definitely inspiring. And everyone listening, if you're this far, you got to go get the book. So where can everybody go get the book and really dig even deeper into this topic? Yep, it's on Amazon. And the easiest way um, to find it is to go to my website, which is corporate-rehab.com. I've got the book that you can order directly there, but also all the coaching and speaking packages um, if that's something of interest to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people listening right now may be somewhat, you know, in their careers and and trying to navigate and climb the ladder and be successful and figure all these things out. So what is one of the biggest lies that you think we have been told in terms of our careers and how we approach them? Yeah, the biggest one I think is that you can have it all um, where we're teed up. And this is really, I think, particularly for women, just based on the generations and and where people find themselves that either you're in the first generation that was told you could do everything or you're the maybe the daughter of a woman who tried to do everything. Um, And I think part of that is, you know, so much of our um, mindsets need to change that you can't do everything at the same time and you've got to make some intentional trade-offs, which is why it's so important to bring some of that conscious, that subconscious stuff to to your thinking mind so that you're aware of what these intentional trade-offs are. But I think the other piece is really within workplaces themselves. You know, so much of it is is designed as if it's 1950, you know, but here we've got all these technological advances and yet we're still behaving as if one person in, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a partnered couple should be the earner and one person should be the nurturer. And everything's set up that way still when you think about it. So I think the the lie is a little bit insidious because it's lies we tell ourselves like, oh, I should be able to figure this all out and do it all. And then it's lies that are told to us that you have everything available to you without national health care, without national caregiving policies, yep. you know, without an understanding of how people bring their lives into work. Um, and I think that's actually what the pandemic showed us. You know, for the first time we saw people's dogs and roommates and kids and spouses on Zooms, you know, and, and it really let a little bit of the reality in that we're all trying to do, you know, to hustle and do all these things and have all this great ambition, but there's all, there's the rest of our lives we want to live too. And so how do you blend both of those together and what are the trade-offs that you need to consciously make and and let go of if, uh, if that's a a trade-off you need to make? Yeah, no, that's, that's very powerful. I do agree. It's, it was such a paradigm shift in many ways, but I feel like if there was one positive that came out of the pandemic, it was, really drawing a lot of people closer to that and realizing like, wow, not only is life short, not only do, you know, we have limited time and, and, you know, life can be taken from us, but how much of this have I been missing? 
in, in my daily life, what's really important. I saw a chart the other day on a LinkedIn post that showed the amount of time that you get to spend with your kids with, uh-huh. you probably have seen it too. I, who was it? I think it was, it was so good. Sahil yeah. Bloom, I think was the one who had it. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, it's just a, a crazy drop off with friends, kids, your parents, and then the time that you spend alone goes up. <laughs> and then I'm like, man, this is what I have to look forward to. Like, this can't be it. But it is a crude reality, right? So it's it's back to that being present, and it's it's hard to do sometimes when you are ambitious and you want to continue to climb. So, have there been any specific practices for you or tools that the listeners can use? to really draw inward and to be able to maybe start breaking that down and being more present and, and realizing what's really most important to them. Yeah. So um, as part of my own process, when I got to the arise phase, I I tried everything. I was like, I'm going to try acupuncture. I took up yeah. ice hockey as a, <laughs> for an adult women's league. I was like, I'm going to learn poetry and yeah. like all kinds of stuff. So I would definitely say play and experiment because everybody is, has a different way of being present um, and figuring out, you know, what are the things that actually get you excited about that? What makes you feel like you're reconnecting with your life a little bit more and living your life as opposed to just performing your life, um, mm. I think is a key piece of that. But um, for me, mindfulness really became a big piece of that. Um, I When I started, I sucked at meditation. Like it was really hard to stay focused after I was so used to like, go, go, go. Um, and so starting with that practice, I think was great. There's a bunch of different great apps out there, but Headspace and The Waking Mind are two that I love. Um, and I find that even now... Um, I think I think the stat is something like it takes 13 weeks to be able to kind of develop, retrain some of those mental grooves, which gave me a ton of hope that like, even if I've got that ski track, that's like really hard woven in there, there's still ability to to make that uh, malleable, which is nice. But I think part of it is being open to the fact that like, sometimes when I meditate, I, I do find this like transcendence or inner peace or what have you. And other times they come up with the best business ideas I've ever had. And I have to like stop and write them down and just being, you know, again, back to my own advice of like not judging what comes up, like just being open to the fact that sometimes it's just creating mental clarity, just like you'd clean off a desk mm-hmm. so that your better ideas come through. And sometimes it's about kind of regrounding um, and just being connected, you know, with you. I, I took a yoga class the other day and they were talking about how when you have your palms down, like on your knees, um, like in a, in a seated pose, it's grounding you. And when you have your palms up, you're ready to receive, mm. um, which I just love because I'm like, well, that's helpful because there's days where I really just need meditation to stay grounded. And then there's times where I feel grounded and, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready to be open and not closed. And I think that's such a key piece to no matter what you do, just being open to what the the universe or, uh, you know, life source or a company, whatever you believe, right, is is going to give you because so much is out there if we're just not closed off and busy surviving and we're actually open to, you know, some of the opportunities around us. Mm. Yeah, that's opening your heart, opening like everything, you know, your mind, your it's it's so freeing when you get to that point and you realize like, wow, all these things that I've stressed about don't really matter that much. <laughs> like, 
If it, it oh, there's a saying, if, if it doesn't matter in five years, don't spend five minutes worrying about it. Right. And, and so often we do, and we attach to these emotions and these things that are moving through us and they get trapped, right. And they get yeah. trapped and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. So being able to notice those things and let them flow through you and, and be able to be present and realize that it's all, all energy, all emotion, everything that we feel can be used and pointed towards something that is positive. And so whenever we understand that and we're in that moment and we can step away and look at ourselves from almost a third party perspective and be like, what's going on here? And to be able to have that seat of consciousness, like you mentioned, bringing it forward, it's such a superpower. It really, really is for business, for relationships, for life. I mean, the amount of times I've used breathwork techniques when I'm feeling stressed out and my heart rate's elevating before a meeting or anything like that, you know, it's, it's really is a superpower to, to sit in that consciousness. So, wow. Yeah. Powerful. I'm inspired. Um, a question I really like to ask and, and close on is what is your definition of success? Mm. Um, being at home with yourself. And I, I don't think I was for a very long time. And it didn't, it wasn't obvious to me. There was just, like I said, those little tiny um, voices. And um, I think I viewed a successful life for a long time of being secure or being, having performed. And I wouldn't have, again, I wouldn't have said that if you had, if you had asked me and interviewed me, I don't think I would have <laughs> said, I just need to perform, but that's the way I was acting, right. right? Like if you actually look at the way I was living my life, it was, well, once I get to this certain level, then I will feel settled enough. And really what I'm saying is, I was saying was, if I have the right financial security and job security, I can avoid feeling vulnerable. And be, being vulnerable makes me very uncomfortable. So I'll just do these things and avoid all vulnerability, which I would have equated with weakness and, and lesser than. I now am very at home with the fact that vulnerability is the door to connection. Mm. Like we cannot actually connect with other humans if we're not able to be a little vulnerable. And whether that's, you know, you and a niece, whether that's you actually trying to close a deal and saying, hey, you know, I've pitched you on this thing three times and <laughs> I'm thinking I might be off here because, you know, I don't understand. And that might open the doorway for the person to say, oh, no, it's not you. It's the fact that you keep doing it at the end of every cycle and I don't have budget or whatever it might be. Yeah. Right. But if we're not able to you know, really be at home with ourselves. And, and that can show up as bringing your full self to work, or it could just show up as being present. Um, I don't think we're successful. I now look at, you know, some of the past goals I had, and it feels very one dimensional, mm -hmm. um, that I would have had success on paper, and maybe as the world defines it, but there's a whole other aspect of life that was out there that I just couldn't even see that, mm. um, that that feels, um, like a big success now that I'm able to, to start to learn more about that side of things. So that's how I would define it. Amazing. Jenny, one more time, where can everybody find you find the book? We want to, we want more, we want more Jenny, where can we get you? Yes. Um, so hit me up on corporate rehab.com and that's the easiest place to get all the information, all my social stuff's linked there. I post a ton on LinkedIn. So that's probably the easiest because so much of my audience is business. 
Um, but I also do some on Instagram and Facebook and a little bit on TikTok, unfortunately, for my 14-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> the struggle. The struggle of using yes, TikTok. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jenny, thank you so much for coming on. It's It's been a blessing. And I know a lot of people are going to definitely benefit and relate to, to hearing your message today. So keep being great. And thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really hope everybody can ditch the hustle culture as it is and, and thrive right where you are. And you have the, the ability to do that. So I'm cheering you on. Absolutely. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to another week of the Breathe and Air podcast where everyday action meets extraordinary mindset. That was the amazing Jenny Blumenthal. Go check out her book. Let us know what you thought of the episode today. And if you enjoyed it and you got something from it, share it with somebody who you think could benefit as well. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. Have a great